Good morning. I know probably many of you know who I am, but my name is Kyle Beckrick. I'm one of Hope's missionaries. I work for a college ministry down in Evansville, Indiana. I love being here with you. Uh, just brief introduction. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. One of the most amazing things about doing college ministry is that if you look at like any of the pictures of the work that I do, year after year, I've been doing this for seven years now, and many of you have been a part of that with me from the beginning. Look at the pictures, and I'm the only one who ever gets older. So everyone is always 18 to 22, except for me, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. And one of the great things about college ministry as well, this is a pro and a con, is that we're, you know, I'm so invested in the, in the lives of young college men, and what do young college men do when they graduate? They get married, right? And so I am constantly in weddings, groomsmen. And so, I mean, I've spent thousands of dollars on tuxedos and suits year after year. And one of the things that goes along with being a groomsman or a best man in a wedding is I attend bachelor parties, or if I'm a best man, I put on the bachelor party. So I'll, I'm a best man in a wedding coming up next month. And so the last two days, I was in Effingham, Illinois, uh, with a guy who actually works for our ministry. And we He's really athletic guy, basketball player, golfer. And so for two days, all we did was play basketball and golf. And you might be thinking, that sounds so fun. That sounds so great. Well, here's the thing about getting older, as I'm sure many of you know. It's a lot harder to play 48 hours of basketball and golf day after day. And what did COVID do? You're just, you know, sitting around, not doing a lot. And I am struggling today. So in the sun all day yesterday, basketball the day before, and I am feeling every bit of 29 years old right now. And that might not seem that old to you, but <laughs> 29, I mean, you're getting up there. You're, you're getting up there at 29. Uh, so maybe not, maybe not in every realm, but in the college ministry world, that's like dog years, right? Every year is like seven years on top of one another. So it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 2. If not, we'll have it on the screen behind us. But this morning, we're going to be talking about being committed to the church. Committed to the church. And if you know much about the Bible, there's 66 books. And each book in the Bible is a part of a different genre. So I don't know about you, but I love music. And what I love best about my love for music is I don't discriminate. Country music, rock music. I was listening to NSYNC on the way up here yesterday, and it was fantastic. doesn't matter if it's a pop band. doesn't matter if it's country. I like it all. And just like with music, country, rock, pop, different genres, the book of the Bible, or the Bible is broken up into books of different genres. So if you go to the book of Psalms, you'll notice it's poetry. And if you go to... Um, the book of Ephesians, it's a letter written from Paul to a church. If you go to Revelation, it's a book on prophecy, predicting the future, telling what is going to happen. And there's also books of history, where someone is giving an account of what has happened. That's the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's someone writing, this is what happened in the life of Jesus. And the book of Acts is also a book of historical narrative, or telling a story of what happened. So the book of Acts is coming right after the book of Luke, also written by Luke, saying this is what happened in the early church after Jesus ascended. 
And so if you think about this text, something that's helpful to think about is the book of Acts is also talking about the lives of the disciples and Paul. And thinking about it as a disciple, as this is going on, think about all that they had gone through to when this was written. So a few weeks back, before we read Acts chapter 2, they were following Jesus around. Galilee, Nazareth, seeing him perform all these amazing miracles, attracting crowds. And then Jesus says, I am going to die. And they're thinking, we gave away our professions, we gave away our homes to follow you, and you're telling us that you're not going to be here anymore? And what ends up happening? Jesus is crucified, and they are struggling when Jesus is crucified. They're doubting, is he going to come back? Is he really who he says he was? And Jesus comes back. And I just think about as one of the disciples, they see Jesus come back. He's with them for 40 days. And think about how great you would be feeling if you were one of the disciples. We, we made the right bet here, right? He's back. He is who he says he is. He is God. We're with him. He rose from the dead. And what does Jesus say again? I'm going to leave again. I'm going to leave again. But this time he says, I'm going to leave something with you. I'm going to give you my spirit, and I will be with you forever until the end of the age. And Jesus leaves the disciples again. But when Jesus leaves this time, he also gives them a mission, and he gives them a purpose. He says, Go and reach all people. Be my witnesses. This is Acts 1, chapter 8. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then right after that, we see Pentecost, where Peter preaches a sermon and thousands trust in Christ. And so thousands have followed Christ. Jesus is gone. And that sets the stage for Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is all the new converts after Pentecost and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had things in, all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray really quick. <clears throat> Father God, we come before you this morning just thankful for your word. God, thankful that we have an account or almost a, a secondhand look at what you did in the lives of people who followed your son. God, just pray that we would be a church who uh, reads this passage this morning and longing for this to happen in our own lives and in our own church. God, we just pray that you would be with us this morning. God, pray that this mission would be accomplished and that you would use our church to see that come to fruition. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is any silver lining uh, for me personally during COVID, it's that I got to pick up a new hobby. And I have become, in the last year, an obsessed golfer. An obsessed golfer. So early on, I played high school sports, and golf is an amazing thing because nothing translates to it. It doesn't matter if you're a genius, a physicist, a baseball player, 
someone just gives you a golf club that you can't go up to and just be a scratch golfer. There's nothing like it. It's amazing. And so last summer, I have this free time during the day. The college campus is closed down. There's a guy at my church who owns a golf range. He says, you can come whenever you want, hit balls for free. And so for the last year, I've just been hitting golf balls like crazy. But the thing about golf is it's really hard. So I'm golfing, and I go to this course last summer, and I'm on hole 13, and I have my driver. And on the last 12 holes, every time I would drive the ball, I would slice it. And if you're not familiar with what golf is or you've not been around a golf course, a slice is when you hit the ball and it starts going straight and then it just shoots off to the right. And I am just so frustrated. Not like throwing your club mad, but internally I'm throwing my club. And so I have an epiphany. I'm just going to aim left. And when I aim left, I'm going to slice the ball the ball is going to go right, and it's going to go on the fairway, and I'm going to become a professional golfer. And so I line up to the ball. I'm aiming straight, and then I just shift my body to the left. And I go up, swing as hard as I can, and I mean that ball is flying straight. And I'm waiting for the slice. It's heading towards this subdivision, going to the house, going to the house. The slice never comes. And I, at this point, I realize it's almost like the time I hit a deer with my car in high school. I'm going to hit this deer. I really hope this goes well. And I close my eyes, and I just wait for the sound. It's either going to be a smash or a crack. And I'm really hoping for a smash that just hits the house and doesn't break a window. And I hear it, and it just flies off the house back onto the golf course. And... A moment of terror, right? I almost took out this person's window. And my love of golf would be gone when my wife says, if we have to pay for this window, you are never golfing again. And thankfully, the Lord wants me to be a professional golfer, so that didn't happen. (laughs) But so much of life, we have situations where we overcorrect, right? And overcorrection is simply something when, when you have a problem and you try to fix it in such a way that it just creates another problem. We overcorrect all the time. This happens when we drive. You're, you know, you're going off to the right, you shift it back to the left, and you're going off to the left side of the road. It happens in our parenting. It happens with our finances. It happens with diets. It happens with diets all the time for me. So many times where I'm like, Kyle, you're eating too much chocolate. And so the next day I'm like, I'm going to become a vegetarian forever. And I make it like six hours before I'm like, ah, shouldn't have done that, bad decision. We overcorrect all the time. But overcorrecting is also something that's happened in the history of the church. So in the 16th century, over in Europe, there was a monk by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a a well-known Catholic, and as he was studying his Bible, one day he came to the realization that we're not saved by the things that we do, but rather we're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Well, that was not the church teaching in the Catholic Church. And there was a, uh, an issue that was brought on by the Catholic Church that was called, um, in my notes, I should have had this one, indulgences. And what an indulgence was, was in the Catholic Church teaching there's heaven and hell and purgatory. And purgatory is simply an in-between state where you weren't 
sinful enough to go to hell, but you weren't holy enough to go to heaven. So you'd go to purgatory, and there would be a cleansing that would take place before you'd go to heaven. This is not the teaching of the Reformed Church, but in the Catholic Church, it's purgatory. And the Catholic Church began to sell what was called indulgences. And what an indulgence was is you would pay X amount of dollars in our, in our culture, and you would shave off time of purgatory for a loved one or a family member. And Martin Luther, studying scripture and realizing there's nothing about purgatory here, there's nothing about indulgences here, why are, why are we as the church going to poor people and asking them to give away their money to take people out of purgatory if we don't see anything about purgatory indulgences? So Martin Luther, he was also a university professor, pens what's called the 95 Theses, which is more or less 95 complaints, and he nailed it to a church door in Germany, and which was common practice at the time if you had a complaint. It was kind of like a bulletin board almost. Well, what this does is it starts a controversy or a, you know, an uprising now known as the Reformation. If you've ever heard of the Reformation, Hope is a Reformed church, so we're a church that comes of the teaching of Martin Luther and other reformers. And as the church began to reform, they, they came to hold to ideas called the five solas. So we believe that we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, scripture alone, all, all of these church teachings that have came from the Reformation. And during the same time period, in England, there was the Church of England, who said, in order to worship on Sunday mornings, you have to go to the Church of England. You can't go worship where you want to. You can't believe what you want to. You have to go to our church. And what happened as a result of the Church of England? Settlers came to America, right? They wanted religious liberty, so they left to come to America. So if you think about this, settlers are coming to America. There's this reformation happening in Germany. We, we don't like what the church is teaching. We think it's unbiblical. We don't like that the Church of England is telling us we have to go here. So when settlers came to America looking for religious freedom, what ended up happening was what I would consider an overcorrection. And this overcorrection is this. The only thing that matters in Christianity is my personal relationship with God. I don't know if you've heard that word before, personal relationship with God, but all that matters is just me and my private life with God. Nothing else matters. And that is really an American way of thinking, right? Is all that matters is just me. Me and my situation. No one can talk to me about my personal things. Really is an American cultural thing. I don't think it's wrong in a lot of areas, but what ends up happening is we begin to neglect often the relationships here in the church. And we don't see as much value with other people and how their walks with God are, or the community, or the mission that we just read about in Acts chapter 2. And we think, all that matters is my relationship with God. All that matters is me and how I'm doing. And although our personal relationship with God really matters, we can overcorrect and say, the other people don't matter in just me. So this morning, what I want to talk about is the middle ground. How can we focus on our personal relationship with God, yet still being committed to the people of God, which is the church. And in Acts chapter 2, we see what spirit-filled Christians, 
right after they receive the Holy Spirit, what their investment looks like in the people of God around them. And I think more than ever, we live in a time where it is so easy to be pulled away from the church. We just went through a year-long pandemic where in many places the church wasn't allowed to gather at all, where it has become easier to watch church on a computer screen than it is to come here in person. Sometimes work gets in the way where I think, oh, it's, I can make overtime if I pick up Sunday morning shift. It, it wouldn't hurt to make time and a half, eight extra hours, so why don't I just pick up this shift instead of coming to the people of God? Or, you know, my kid, he's going to be a professional golfer, and the only tournament he can play in is on Sunday morning. So do I choose the golf tournament or do I choose going to church on Sunday? Vacation sounds good. It's hard to vacation during a school year. Why don't I just go every weekend in the month of June? And I can just watch church at home on my computer, on my laptop. Or maybe it's just church really isn't that interesting to me. Being, you know, hearing from 29-year-old college ministers talk about bachelor parties is not the most fun thing in the world. It'd be better if I just stayed home and didn't do this. My point is, is probably some of those are resonating with you. And the reality is, is we live in a time where there are so many different things trying to pull us away from investing in the church, in the people of God. So what does it mean to be invested in the church? If someone were just to ask you or give you a questionnaire, are you really invested in the people of God in this church? What would you say? Would you say yes? Would you say no? And if you would say yes, what would be your... Uh, your rationale for saying, yeah, I'm invested? Is it just coming to church on Sundays? Is it uh, the amount of money you give? Is it the amount of time you spend doing certain things? Is it the amount of committees you serve on? What would be your answer for being committed to the church? I'm hopeful this text will help us answer that question this morning. And I have three main points. Committed to this, committed to this, committed to this. And I think that'll give us an idea of what it means to be committed to the church. The first one is this. The people of God are committed to orthodoxy. Committed to orthodoxy. I'd be thinking, fancy word, but it's very important for what we're talking about. And what orthodoxy means, it comes from two Greek root words. The first is ortho, which means right or straight or true. So right. And then dox, uh, in this English word doxy, means viewpoint or opinion. So right or true view, committed to orthodoxy. The church has to be committed to truth. The church has to be committed to truth above all things. So if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the first words used to describe the fellowship of new believers was a devotion to the apostles' teaching. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. And if I were to summarize the goal of the Christian life in just two sections, it would be this to know God, and to make God known. And we're going to talk about what it means to make God known, but in order to know God, you have to have a commitment to the truth, to his word, to the teaching of his word. And we live in an age of technology where you can get, with this amazing thing, I love my iPhone, at any point I can get a thousand different viewpoints on anything, on anything. But what is the chief source of information in my life? Is it Twitter? Is it Facebook? Is it Fox News, CNN? 
or is it God's word? What is the chief authority in my life? As a Christian, our chief authority has to be scripture. And when scripture is our ultimate authority, it begins to funnel down and impact the way that we view all of these other things. Parenting, vacation, finances, diet, sports, friendships, the church, etc. All comes from a knowledge and a love of God's word. And the early church had all of these same things going on. Sure, they didn't have an iPhone, but they had philosophers, and they had hobbies, and they had work, and they had sicknesses and illnesses. They, I'm sure they went on some sort of recreational vacation. People 2,000 years ago had the same struggles that we do today. Maybe not with an electronic device, but with something else. But these new Christians were committed to the apostles' teaching. Right now, I'm finishing up my seminary degree. I've been working on it for the last few years. And I've saved the worst for last, which is the Old Testament. Specifically, I have to learn Hebrew. And I don't like learning other languages, mostly because I'm not very good at it. But Hebrew is a brutal language to learn. Uh, No offense to any Hebrew scholars in here, but you read right to left. It looks like scribbles on a page. And it is really challenging. In order for me to graduate, I have to take nine credit hours of Hebrew, three semesters. It's brutal. And what I do is I take my Hebrew textbook with me everywhere I go, sitting in my car right now. It's in my backpack, and when I go anywhere, I have my flashcards and I have my Hebrew textbook because if I don't have it with me, and if I just take a week off of Hebrew, I'm going to forget everything. I'm going to forget everything. I am absolutely committed to learning this language so I can never have to take it again. Take it with me everywhere I go. I read it. I study it. It's almost like it's a part of me. That's how, that's how often I carry it with me. I am devoted to my Hebrew textbook. In the same way, a Christian should be that committed and that devoted to God's word. Do you carry God's word with you everywhere you go? Are you committed to taking it out and reading it and not letting it slip away so you forget about the truths that are in it? Do you have flashcards with the scripture memory verses that you talk about each Sunday morning so you can remember First Chronicles for the next week? Is God's word written on your heart? Is it a part of you? And it should be because this is what we see in the early church. This is inspired God's word, Acts chapter 2, devoted to the word of God? Is it a part of you? Are you committed to sitting and learning the truth from the word of God? Commitment to orthodoxy. Next, a commitment to fellowship. I don't know about you, but the word fellowship is thrown around all the time. So much so that I don't really even know what it means sometimes. And thankfully, again, I think God's word sheds a lot of light on what fellowship is. In Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, we get a definition of it. and says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So really there's two things there. The first is encouraging one another, stirring them up, and not neglecting to meet together. Fellowship, really simple. Be encouraging, meet together. So if you're being unencouraging, 
And if you're not meeting together, there's no fellowship. Simple. And we even get a more clear example of this in the passage as well. We get a few examples of things like breaking bread together, praying together, having all things in common. And I think this is so amazing that we get an insight on this. Breaking bread together. The Christian life is fun. A fruit of the Spirit is joy. I think so often we think of fellowship as like, oh man, got to go hang out with those people that I really don't know that well. It's going to be tons of awkward small talk, and I get that. I am like the anti-small talk guy. It drives me nuts sometimes. But what, it, what you see in fellowship is a devotion to one another, to getting to know one another more than just those surface-level conversations. It's entering into the lives of one another to know what is happening. And when you break bread together, when you have a meal together, it's supposed to be fun. You know, bring out your cornhole boards. Have a barbecue. Make hamburgers. Drink a beer or non-alcoholic beer if you're against alcohol. Whatever is, you know, where you're at on the spectrum. But enjoy time together. Break bread together. Invite people into your home. Love them. Care for them. Enjoy time together. The Christian life is fun. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And so often, people look at the Christian life, they look at the church and they think, man, Christians are so boring. There's no life in the church. It's just not true. And if it is true, there's something wrong. If the Christian should be marked by joy and peace and kindness, we should live lives that are attractive to our unbelieving neighbors, the unbelieving people in our communities. Next, praying together, interceding in worship. I, I know this has, has been a huge part of my life and, and something that often can be neglected, but when you pray together as Christians, what ends up having to happen is you let people into your life. Here are the things I'm struggling with. Here are the things that have been hard for me. Will you pray for me? I've been sick or I've been hurt or I've been struggling with this or my wife has been struggling here or our kids have had a hard time with this. Could you take some time to pray for our kids? And that accomplishes two things. The first is that we're trusting God to intercede in ways that we can't. We don't have the ability to, you know, uh, see someone become a Christian. God has to do that work. We don't have the ability to change the way our children behave. Only God can do that. So we're trusting that God will intercede. But more than that, and along with that, we're having other Christians enter into our life. It's so easy to just talk about surface things, but what prayer does is it allows other Christians to enter into what's happening in our life. Luke also says that, the, that all of these people had all things in common. All things in common. That's an interesting thing to say. That the early church had all things in common. Part of college ministry, I alluded to this earlier, is giving dating advice and give a lot of dating advice, probably a lot of bad dating advice, to be honest. It's like, you learn a little bit with everyone, though. So the guys, when I was like 23, bad advice. I feel like better advice at 29 and like 10 years now, I'd be like, I'm so sorry for the things I told you. I was way off on that. Um, but the most important piece of dating advice for a young Christian in college is date other Christians. And some people think, man, why would you say that like that? You're just, you know outcasting all of the people that they want to date that aren't Christians? And I say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. And they say, why would you do that? Like, 
Well, and it simply comes down to this, and we, we could talk about how Scripture says don't be unequally yoked, but more than that, as a Christian, the most important thing in your life is your faith, right? And every part of your life is centered around what is most important to you. If the most important thing in your life is your job, your life will be centered around your job. You will bring it home with you. You will spend time working on it. You will leave and uh, not do other important things to go do your job. If the most important thing in your life is fill in the blank, your life will be revolved around it. So as a Christian, our life should be revolved around Jesus. Our time should be spent knowing him more. The decisions we make are impacted by our faith. So, when someone says, why shouldn't I do that? Well, I said, the most important thing to you is not the most important thing for them. And so it's just going to be a matter of time before worlds intersect and you're you know, disagreeing on something else. And we could you know, talk about, if you disagree with me, I'd love to talk with you more about that. But I really believe that is the most important thing for a Christian is their faith. And when you're looking for someone else, the most important thing should be their faith. Point of this is this. If you look at the early church and you look at the church today, I would make the claim that you have more in common with a Christian you have never met in your life on the other side of the world than you do with a non-believer that is in your family. Why? Because what is most important to you is most important to them. You have all things in common as a result of your faith. It doesn't matter if you cheer for a different football team. It doesn't matter if you uh, have a different hobby or a different profession. What is most important to you, what has changed your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh is your faith in Jesus Christ. What's most important to you is most important to them. The people of God, the church, is a family. It is a family. And how do you show commitment to your family, like your actual blood relatives? There's probably care there. There's commitment. There's sacrifice. There's service. Unconditional love. I, t I try to tell my daughter all the time, because I know there's going to be ways where I, I'm going to screw this up in the future, but I tell Coral all the time, Daddy loves you no matter what. Tell her, you can do no matter what you do, I will still love you. It's true. Cora could go off the deep end one day, but I'm committed to her, and I love her no matter what she does. Love her. It's love for a family. In the same way, that's how the church should be interacting with one another. A love for people next to you in this room, in this building. And, I, and even this past summer, I was in Orlando uh, for work for a month, and someone at our church called me and said, hey, is it okay if I come cut your grass once a week until you get back from Orlando? And I was like, yeah, that would, that would be really amazing. I was going to pay someone else to do it. And what had to happen for this to occur? He had to know I had a need. My need was I was going to be out of town for a month. And he was willing to come and sacrifice his time, put his lawnmower on a truck, drive it over to my house, spend an hour cutting my grass to serve me and love me and care for me the same way that I would do for one of my kids. Do you know the needs of the people in this church to that degree where if they were to be gone for a month, you would say, hey, is there, is there anything I can do to help you while you're gone? Do you know the people in the church like you would your family? Is your life marked by a commitment to fellowship like the early church was? Breaking bread together, commitment to one another, uh, loving, serving one another. And finally, 
commitment to orthodoxy, commitment to fellowship, and a commitment to mission. Acts 2, 45 and 47 say this, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see is the early church was living sacrificially for the good of others. They were willing to give up things that they had for the sake of others. Often, it's actually kind of funny, you might not think this is funny, but this passage has been used uh, to be a uh, defense for communism and socialism. People say, look at Acts chapter 2. Like This is why socialism is good and communism is good. Uh, this is, I probably should stop where I'm going with this. Uh, this is, there's no good way to talk about socialism and communism in the church, except for the point I wanted to make was there was no uh, government interceding here saying, this is what you have to do. You have to give away all your stuff. You have to you know, sell your house and your car for other people. These were Christians who were so convinced of the love of God that they wanted to love other people on their own. It was their own personal decision. I want to love those around me and help them. So I'm willing to depart with this so this other person could be blessed. Sacrificial giving, sacrificial... (laughs) That was a bad direction. I should have said that. But the whole point was, is Christians are marked by sacrificial giving and sacrificial living. The next thing that Luke says is they had favor with all people. I think this is amazing too, that these early Christians had favor with people around them. And they, when it says all people, it's not just other Christians or not just people that uh, acted similar to them or believed the same things, but they had favor with all people. And I think about the fruits of the Spirit, peace, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness. Wouldn't you think that Christians should have favor with all people if you're marked by the fruits of the Spirit, right? If you acted that way with all people, your neighbors, your coworkers, people around you on Facebook, People would love you, right? They would, they wouldn't, they would like. They might not believe what you believe, but they would say, "Man, I really respect that guy. Or, I, I really respect her. I don't believe what she believes, but I respect them." And when it comes to sharing the gospel with a man or woman, if you want to see someone trust in Christ, do you think they're going to listen to the things that you have to say if they don't respect your life? If they say, "Man, this guy is really dishonest at work," or if this guy talks. If he yells at his wife, I, I can hear him screaming from here. Do you think they want to hear the gospel that you're preaching? No. But to the guy who loves his wife and serves her and cares for her, and to the guy who, I'm speaking specifically to men, but this is true for women too, speaks gently with his kids when they're acting up instead of going off the deep end, which I've done before, that faith is much more attractive than to the one who doesn't live by the fruits of the Spirit, is not marked by the fruits of the Spirit. Did you say your life is marked by the fruits of the Spirit? Love and peace and patience and joy. And we know that it's not that way all the time. But are you heading in that direction? Is that the trajectory you're aspiring toward? There was a, a church that I was speaking at recently, and it was during Halloween time, and they have a gospel tract uh, ministry, which is fine that it's a sheet of paper that, you know, it's like one of those things, except for the million-dollar bill. Have you seen that one before? It's like a gospel tract is a sheet of paper that shares the gospel in a creative way, if you're not familiar with them. But there's one that's like a million-dollar bill, 
and it was like, if you ever had a million dollars, would it be worth your soul? And I'm not sure it's that effective, but what people do is they'll just drop like these. They look real. They look like an actual like $100 bill. And I'd say that one's a little deceptive, but I wouldn't drop money just all over the street hoping people pick it up and like, oh, it's not actually a million dollars. It's a gospel tract. But so they were talking about handing out gospel tracts at Halloween. And uh, I told them, this is, this is a true story, but I also think this is good practice. If you're going to hand out gospel tracts at Halloween, don't hand them out with Tootsie Rolls. You hand out gospel tracts with king-size candy bars, right? Because if I was a kid and I walked up and got five Tootsie Rolls, no offense to Tootsie Roll lovers, I would think, I am not going to read this piece of paper. But if it was marked by kindness with a king-size candy bar, I might be interested in what this person has to say. That's a funny example, but saying, man, this person is willing to do something extraordinary because they care about me and they love me. It's like the person who doesn't leave a tip at a restaurant, but they put a Bible verse. That person's probably not going to look up that Bible verse if you don't leave them a tip, but you leave them a Bible verse. What I'm saying is, is people notice the way you interact with other people. People notice the way you talk to them. If you claim to be a Christian and are unkind, unwilling to serve people, unwilling to be gentle and loving and etc., they're not going to want to hear about how you have to give up your life to follow Jesus. So, would you say that your life is marked by this? The fruits of the Spirit, sacrificial living. And I'd like to funnel that down to just two things. The first is giving your time. What is the majority of your time going to in life? Sure, work and sleep and hobbies. But are you serving this church? This church with a mission to reach the community around us. A community that a lot of us grew up in and love. But so much of the church takes time. And I don't know exactly all the needs of Hope Church, but I'm sure they have a children's ministry. I'm sure they have greeters and all of these ministries during the week as well. Are you giving any of your time to those? And maybe you can't. Maybe it's not something you're able to do. But you should all ask the question, if I'm not, why? What else is taking up my time where I am unable to serve the body that I worship on a Sunday? And I'm specifically talking mostly to members here. Uh, I'm not getting paid to say this. Uh, I just think it's important. I think it fits with the text. Actually, Andy slipped me a $20 bill to put that in my notes earlier. <laughs> Got to be honest. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but seriously, we look at the text. We see a devotion to the people of God, not just your personal family, not just your personal life. Would you say your life is marked by a devotion to the people of God with your time, with your resources? Because I think about this community that I grew up in, lived here for 19 years, not one person that I grew up in ever told me about Jesus. Not one. And the people who did claim to be Christians were the same people partying with me on the weekends, the same people that I saw yelling at their spouses, and I thought, man, Christianity is not attractive. It's not attractive. Until I got to college, and a 19-year-old sat me down and told me about Jesus, and I looked at his life, and I said, there's something there, and I want it. What is it? He said, it's my faith. And I think about this church and these people and said, this is the impact we could be having in this community. 
There are thousands of people within 20 miles of here who don't know this or don't know the goodness of God. And we can do something about it by being a church who's committed to God and committed to people. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, um, God, just confess that there are often times in my life that are not marked by the fruits of the Spirit. God, ways that I talk to my wife or to my kids or the way that I think about a certain situation. God, I just pray that my life would be marked by a love for Jesus. God, that my time would reflect that, that I would be committed to knowing his word, that I'd be committed to knowing the people of God, and that I would be committed to living missionally for your glory. God, I pray that that would be true in my life and in the lives of people in this church. God, I pray that uh, just like in this passage, the number of people being saved was added day by day. God, I pray that that would be true for Lowell and for Hope Church as well. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.